0: Welcome to the Don't Break a Leg Podcast. I'm Danielle Parzanigan, a dancer and physical therapist specializing in the treatment of performing artists in Houston, Texas.
1: And I'm Jake Manley, an athletic trainer and physical therapist at Pro PT in Winchester, Virginia. I lift weights, and the only time I dance is if I've had a couple beers at a wedding. Though we come from such different backgrounds, we're both incredibly passionate about the performing arts.
0: We hope to educate you on a variety of topics about the health and wellness of performing artists to optimize your performance, longevity, and success.
1: Welcome to the show. Welcome to part two of our interview with Claire's Eye. Before we get into it, I just want to give you a real quick word from our sponsors. Pro, the company that I work for, which is a pretty awesome company, if I may say so myself, is now offering virtual health and wellness coaching to help facilitate you staying active and achieving your goals. You guys can speak one on one with me, a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength coach, um, to discuss training, injury, rehab, and learn more about how you can stay accountable take back control and optimize your health and fitness, even during this this weird time. Our approach is evidence-based, comprehensive, and focuses entirely on you. One-time consultations, as well as long-term programs are available. Regardless of what your specific needs are, we've got you covered. For more information, go ahead and contact me directly. My info will be in the description. And we'll hop back in with Claire's eye right now. Oh, um, I guess facilitating conversations about these topics. I mean, obviously, we're on a podcast talking about these things right now. Yeah. But I mean, is there? Should we be using social media more? Like, do you have strategies that you use to facilitate discussions on on topics like this?
2: I definitely use social media. I'm trying to write as much as I can in my free time to start getting female athletes to understand the importance of and directing it at female athletes specifically. Um, to get them to understand not only the importance of resistance training, but how to get started. Um, So I use social media, and I um, write articles, and I put them on my website. Um, But that reaches, like, all of six people. So hooray for those six female athletes. But um, it's – I don't know. It's a challenge. I think we're still trying to figure
0: it out. So – I mean, I think community outreach is always the best thing to do. And for those who know about the literature and what's out there to really get into the public and be telling these kids this information at a young age, but you mm-hmm. don't all have the time and resources to be able to do that either. So yeah, I also find it challenging.
2: I think there needs to be a shift in society as well that may it more accessible for women to be doing strength and conditioning so like as we've talked about before in this podcast like there are a lot of barriers to getting women in the gym like I the first time I walked into the college gym at CU I was like oh my gosh it's just a bunch of dudes down here and it's like in the basement of the gym it's dark it's gross it's like there's no one who looks like you and no one who you can be you can turn to and be like hey, I don't know how this, like, weight machine works. Can you help me? Because there's just a bunch of dudes with their nipples out, and it's weird, and I get it. So there needs to be – sorry, Jake's grandma. You probably didn't want to hear that. Um, But, you like, there needs to be women out there who are, like, approachable and easy to talk to who can help get female athletes doing this. But we don't have – that societal, um, norm that like women should be in a gym. Like it takes women a long time to get into a gym and it's hard to keep them there unless they have like a really strong social support. And unfortunately you're most likely to make like a social support group with people who look like you. And if there's no one who looks like you in the gym, and this is true for all people, not just women, but, uh, people of color or, um, people who, like have disabilities, they're less likely to stay in the gym um, if they don't see people who they're like, oh, we can be friends because we look like each other. And that's like the first easy step to like recognizing you might have someone who is there for you.
1: So, so what about for someone like me who I would say for most dancers, I am like the antithesis of everything that they are. How, how should I like, what, what things can I do or someone in a position like me to make that less scary or apprehensive or fearful?
2: I think what you're doing now is, is really great. Cause you're providing them with this level of self-efficacy to understand like, oh, if I walk into a gym, there are going to be things that I recognize that I can say, like, I know what to do with this. So they're you're lowering that barrier already through education. Um, and then it, just because I know who you are, uh, the more people you talk to and the more people who you offer help to, um, they're going to be willing to come back to you and say, like, hey, I'm having this issue. Can you help me? So, like, even if you don't automatically make friends with the person, um, you're providing them education and a resource to come back to. So... And I think whenever, this is something that bothers me about gyms, if you see someone in the gym and you're there all the time, so I'm at the gym five to six days a week, so if I see someone there, I'm like, oh, I've never seen this person here before, I go up and I introduce myself, I'm like, hi, I'm Claire, I don't know if you're new here, but I haven't seen you before, it's nice to meet you, and what do you know, I already have a new friend, so I know everyone at my gym, and it's really helpful, but I work, in a, I work out in a smaller gym so commercial gyms that's more difficult but yeah did that answer your question jake
1: yeah no i I definitely agree with you i would just a little caveat like my gym uh because it's like a more like old school geared powerlifting gym Mm -hmm. it's usually like they're they're more the mentality of like um you have to earn your right to be like spoken to (laughs) so it's like It's, but it's also just a bunch of like mostly like thirty and forty year old dudes that do geared powerlifting. Yeah. So you know we'll introduce ourselves to a new guy, but like, I think it's because the history of people that don't stick around for very long, mm-hmm. that there's just been so many people that have come in to check out check out the gym, um, that they just like, and I don't, know, I don't know if we're like facilitating that.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say like if you. To, if you don't feel connected to anyone at the gym, why would you stay? Right.
1: Yeah. But we're also just like, it's literally like a dungeon that six people work out in. So.
2: Yeah. Okay. So let me reframe it for you. If you were my size. So for the internet, I weigh 165 pounds. I'm five, three. I'm also a little bit of a meatball, um, but I'm a very small meatball. I'm like Jake, but drunk. Um, So like when I walk into a gym and there's six dudes deadlifting 700 pounds I'm like ha and no one can see my face that wasn't helpful um <laughs> <very> <laughs>
1: just imagine what what face would go with that ha noise yeah that's um, kind of scary. So
2: it's really intimidating especially because um I'm never gonna deadlift over, well I'm not gonna say never I when I go to the gym and I'm doing like a regular workout I'm gonna be deadlifting no more than 400 pounds So, like, you guys are deadlifting almost double what I am. And from a female's perspective, like, I think women have this extra layer of safety also added on top. So Mm. I've been – I've had some awful interactions at a gym from men who think it's appropriate to make weird comments. And so when you have not only that, plus you don't know what you're doing, plus you're, like – You have no one to talk to. There's no reason to stay at a gym if you don't feel like you're getting something out of it other than just a workout. You can work out anywhere. So the gym has to be part of your support system and community. So.
0: I think even more take that as a 16-year-old skinny girl who's never been to a gym before Mm -hmm. in one of those settings. And the amount of intimidation she would feel would probably be immense, you know. Oh, tenfold. Yeah. 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 How often do you think, say, a dancer, we'll take the 16-year-old girl, is training five days a week, we'll say 12 hours a week for ballet, how often and, like, how many hours would you tell her to be in the gym to make sure she's still getting proper rest and fueling her body to perform in ballet class? I think that's the issue is finding the time and the time, yeah. knowing that it's going to make your dance better and you're not going to just be gassed all the time. Mm-hmm. I,
2: I think this is a really hard question if you don't understand how dance is, which I don't understand how dance is programmed, but yeah. from our conversation, it sounds like it's very technique focused for like one to two hours. Mm-hmm. Or two to three hours a day? Does that
0: mm-hmm. is that about right? For the most part. And it's, you know, about the first half of the class, it's simply technique. You're just standing at a bar doing different movements with your legs, which can be exhausting. But you're really not pushing into, you know, the power or strength areas. Mm-hmm. And then the second half of the class, you go away from the bar. So no upper extremity support. And you're doing turning and leaping across the floor. So a little bit of anaerobic um, work, but not mm-hmm. much still. And yeah. then sometimes you'll have a rehearsal afterwards. So that's typically how the class is laid out. So I think for a 16 year old girl who's been training
2: for a while, like been dancing probably since she was like, what four, right?
1: Yeah. It's pretty, pretty average.
2: Um, if you start women, training at like eight you'd start pretty low like you'd probably have them do it once a week for like 20 minutes just just start there and then you're gonna slowly ramp up over time which means that you might not end up dancing five times a week for two to three hours. Granted I understand where that doesn't fit in like the traditional dance setup. But mm-hmm. if you want to like support their overall ability, you need to give them time to develop that GPP. And yeah. that's what's going to give them time to rest. It's like maybe not taking away overall time, but maybe readjusting it. And that's
1: one of the things that I often wonder about because um, I think there's this spike in what is called dancer conditioning that a lot of studios and companies are using. And at least my, and Daniel, you can speak on your experiences with it. But my Mm -hmm. experience with it is I'll have a a dancer come in and they'll say, you know, I'll I'll ask them about, like, you know, what they're doing, how they're supplementing their activity, are they cross-training, are they doing this, that. And more often than not, they will say, oh, yeah, we're doing conditioning at the end of class. I'm like, (laughs) okay, well, what what is that? Like, what is conditioning? And a lot of times it's, like, clamshells and, like, bridges and maybe some plies and then, like, some abs, and that's their conditioning, right? And so, like, in my mind, yeah. Yeah. there's really nothing there that's supplementing what they're doing. They're just kind of doing, like, another couple sets of plies, but they've already done probably, like, a 100 of them throughout that class. So, like, the, that extra set of plies at body weight with no additional, you know, resistance, I don't really know that it's doing much. And same thing with, like, the bridges and clamshells. Like, I don't know that there's enough of a stimulus to actually promote anything. And then when you say, like, conditioning, that makes me think they're going to be, like, you know, like running or pushing a sled, not just doing, like, three sets of templates and some apps.
0: Yeah, I would say that is definitely what conditioning looks like for the most part. Or they say conditioning, and they mean, we'll call it a stretch and strengthen class. So they'll sit in their splits for a really long time. And we could have a whole talk about, you know, splits and overstretching. But they'll sit in their splits. They'll do, like, a thousand crunches and planks. And then, yeah, maybe a couple turned-out squats, so plies. Um, but never adding weights. So that is typical conditioning. And typically studios will do it once a week. Um, so yeah, it's not conditioning like, they, like we see in other sports. That sounds awful. That sounds like
2: <laughs> every dancer is like, Ugh, I don't want to go to this class. This seems like the worst thing in the world because it's not dance. And it doesn't sound like it's fun in any other way. <laughs>
1: But a lot of them them get, like, super hyped about it, though. Really? Because I feel like a lot of the the narrative that's framed around it is, like, this is the stuff that's going to help you get stronger or help you, you know, reduce injury risk. And, like, I just don't know that I agree with that because I don't think that there's anything that they're doing that's truly making a difference. Mm -hmm. I think if you've got some kettlebells and put them in your studio – And you took that 20 minutes, 30 minutes that you're going to do dancer conditioning and you had people do, you know, like four by six squats and like Mm -hmm. some deadlifts or like RDLs or something, and then threw in some like arm bars or some overhead press, that that would be enough to get the ball rolling to start making Mm -hmm. a difference.
2: So the problem is, is that they're already so well conditioned at doing body weight work. Body weight work isn't adding anything to what they do. Mm -hmm. So, like, adding more body weight work is just adding more volume instead of adding intensity. And so if you want to increase their ability to, like, jump, it's more complicated than this. But if you want to increase their ability to jump and leap, you're going to have to add a different stimulus. Mm -hmm. So, but, yeah, dancers are just so strong. (laughs) Uh, Body weight work isn't enough for them. So... Body weight work probably isn't enough for most athletes.
1: Sometimes, Claire, body weight work is all that we have.
2: <laughs> yes, but you can make body weight work more challenging. So, like, instead of doing the same plies you've already been doing, you might have to, I don't know if it's possible to do a one-legged plie, but, like, teach them how to do pistol squats. So you're moving the same amount of weight with less musculature to uh, increase the load on that muscle group. So, yeah. Yeah, I think for a lot
1: of people, it would be really hard to leave turnout world, though.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it would be hard to do a turned-out pistol squat. We could probably try it later, Jake, you know, see how it goes. I would love to see a video of this on the internet.
1: (laughs) That's my next vlog.
0: Next YouTube video, turned-out pistol squats.
1: Do you have, Daniel, do you have any experience, like have you seen anything different from a dancer conditioning perspective? Like, have you seen anybody start to use weights or anything like that in a studio?
0: Um, I have used weights when I teach at summer intensives, but there's a lot of pushback from directors and parents too, especially when you're, you know, teaching their 11 year old daughter and you're using weights. They're like, no, 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 no. Like you shouldn't be doing that. You're going to stunt their growth and, You're going to make their legs big and, you know, she has to fit into this tutu. So I think once they realize that I have a sound knowledge of the requirements of dance and also the physical therapy degree, they believe me more, but they still don't buy in 100%. But I haven't seen many other studios doing that. And I think if you talk to a dancer about cross training, they're going to say they're doing Pilates or gyrotonics or yoga and that is their definition of cross training
1: or they just do like 20 minutes on the elliptical but like they don't monitor their heart rate you know like or anything like that it's just usually kind of like a leisurely pace to just do it yeah which isn't necessarily bad like it's good that they are being active and practicing movement it's just from a performance enhancement standpoint there's more optimal ways to aid them on the stage than I think some of those mm-hmm. things. Because like Claire was saying, with a lot of those bodyweight things, like, yeah, they're hard and they are They can be challenging. But for someone who does that, we're talking like thousands of reps a week, you know, if they're in a collegiate setting, it's probably not making enough of a stimulus to force true adaptation. Yeah,
2: 1,000 versus 1,030 plies is probably, probably not going to make a difference.
0: I would say there are probably that many that you do in a week. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There was something I wanted to go back to that Danielle said earlier, that she doesn't push when you were in college or when you were dancing, you wouldn't push yourself to 100% all the time. And I think Mm -hmm. that's something that's really important in being like, A hundred percent all the time is not the way that you're going to uh, maximally increase adaptation without inducing a ton of fatigue at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I think what you are talking about is the same thing we do in um, resistance training is we work at like an RP, well, a lot of people work at like an RPE8, which -hmm. is like, oh, you have about two reps in reserve or like you have a couple reps left in the tank And that way, you know that you're not like maxing out every time, which, in my opinion, isn't the best way to go. But you are still like creating an adaptation that is useful. Um, but you're leaving something there. Like it doesn't have to be 100% all the time. Yeah. And I think that's important to like get back to and say that again. Mm. So.
1: And that's one of the things like that. The idea of marking something. Mm -hmm. When I work with a a dancer, um, that's one of the first things that we'll we'll talk about. If there's an injury or something that we're working around, um, it'll be like, is your teacher okay with you marking this? Because Mm -hmm. we need to limit certain things to help facilitate you get back there. And it's a way, too, especially in the collegiate setting, like, injury in a college dance setting potentially means that you could have your grade affected. Or if you have a surgery, like... That, that whole semester's got to be repeated
2: mm-hmm.
1: if it's a long recovery process. So, mm-hmm. I think, like, outs you know, when we look at other sports, they've got athletic trainers. You know, you can take a medical red shirt, it's not a big deal, it doesn't affect your academic performance. Mm-hmm. But if you're a collegiate dancer, like, that is your that's your major, that's what your career is going to be. Like the implications of an injury or a surgery are vastly larger mm-hmm. for, for that person.
2: Yeah. And I think that we've touched on this several times throughout this conversation of using resistance training to help prepare these women and athletes for these female athletes, excuse me, for their um, careers in their school and their dancing is that hopefully that the hope is that doing this resistance training actually helps to mitigate the amount of injuries that they experience, not just like, oh, you're going to be better on the, on the stage. Mm -hmm. You're also going to be less likely to have these injuries because you're prepared for these high levels of stress. So.
0: I think that's a great point. If you want to come talk at any of my dance studios, you're more than welcome to. I'd love to, yeah. You're in, you're on the West Coast? No, I'm in Houston. Uh, I would love to come to San Diego. (laughs) You are
2: always welcome. As soon as this uh, virus is
0: run its course a little bit more, you are
2: always welcome. But if I'm ever in Houston, I'll let you know.
1: Guys, BRB getting a um, a course set up where we can go talk about how dancers need to live things.
0: (laughs) I think that would be a great thing to start and just put out there, you know, there are so many techniques. Like, Jake, I'm sure you've heard of progressive ballet technique, which is basic Have you heard of that?
1: Jake? I don't think so.
0: Uh, oh, it, it's huge right now in the ballet world. And all it is is taking the ballet movements and using, like, a Swiss ball to oh, make it different. I think, <laughs> you know, make it I think, this is,
1: I think this is one of the things that you've sent me on Instagram as just, like, a you were like disgusted with it and you're, you just like sent it to me and we're like,
0: oh. I'm not disgusted with it. I, I think, <laughs> you know, I think anything that's different than what they're already doing is great. I think the idea that it's going to fix injuries and make them so much stronger. I don't know how they get away with advertising that, um, Oh, you can advertise whatever you want.
1: Yeah. Fair. It doesn't have to be uh, true. You can say whatever you want on the internet.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So what is it that they're doing? They're adding a Swiss ball to traditional ballet movements?
0: Yeah, basically. Um, I guess it engages, you know, the lower abdominal muscles more because it adds some sense of perturbation to the training. Um, it's just this whole technique that dancers have latched on to. Um, and they all think it's gonna make them stronger, but then when I introduce, you know, a kettlebell or a dumbbell into their training, they're like, mm-hmm. "Whoa, whoa!" Like I'm already doing this technique. Like I don't need to do anything mm-hmm. else. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> I think they, just, it... they buy into anything. So I, I wish they would just buy into resistance training more. You mm-hmm.
1: know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, think I have that... seen.
1: Oh, okay, go, go ahead. Go
0: ahead.
2: I think that the idea that a weight is inherent – a weight itself is inherently male, like a, a dumbbell is inherently a male thing,
0: mm-hmm. or
2: any weight, and uh, just, like, I think it's so important that they're properly loaded. Like, adding – I don't know how much these Swiss balls weigh, but, like, adding 25 pounds is not enough. Like, mm-hmm. you can start there, but if you are a fully grown human who is also involved in sport – you will probably end up lifting more than twenty-five pounds.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Sorry, Jake. Go Just ahead. I'm telling you. Ten year old I like all my ten year olds deadlifting a hundred pound kettlebell.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And
1: then they're like they're some of them are tiny. Mm-hmm. But, um, wait, what was I gonna
2: say? So wait, they're like deadlifting their, their body weight or more? <laughs> I don't know how much a ten year old weighs. Yeah, in probably a lot less, of cases, yeah. Yeah,
1: I'll get, I mean, pretty frequently I'll get like a 70, 80 pound dancer to a hundred pounds for reps. I mean, it's a kettlebell, so it's going to be a little bit different than like a barbell deadlift. It's a little bit easier movement in my opinion, but
2: still, I don't, there are so many people who are like, oh, that weighs more than me. I can't pick it up. Mm. You definitely, you definitely can. (laughs) You can definitely pick up your own body weight.
1: That's why I trick them. Yeah. I'm like, we're going to do the big orange one. And they're like, okay. And they pick it up. And I'm like, how much does that weigh? And the best response I ever got from somebody, they looked at me and they go, uh, probably about two watermelons. <laughs> and I was like, what? like what, kind of, what? What are you talking about? They're like, I mean, it's as heavy as two watermelons. And then they look at it,
2: it's 100 pounds, and they're just like, what? So you have either completely given them the wrong idea about how much a watermelon weighs Or you've given them a lot of self-confidence.
1: They must have, like... Because, like, I'm in a more of a rural area, so they may be on, like, Berryville with, like, a... They might have, like, the prize-winning state fair watermelon (laughs) that's, like, 60 pounds or something.
2: I don't know if a 10-year-old could get their arms around a watermelon that's that big. It's like a... You guys can't see me. It's like a huge watermelon.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I'm not... I don't know watermelon metrics very very well.
2: (laughs) No, I don't measure many things in watermelons. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, I did because we we kind of touched on both of these things oh I was going to the thing I was going to say is I don't know about that particular program that you're talking about mm-hmm. but I have seen uh, and I forget the name of it but I've seen a weight training thing for dancers where they just basically give them like one pound pink dumbbells and then they do essentially ballet while holding these dumbbells And it's marketed as, like, strength training and toning and all this other stuff. And, like, that just infuriates me. Because we can – Claire kind of touched on this before, like, um, the dumbbell being, like, inherently masculine. And a lot of times when we see just anything that's marketed towards a female, it's, like, pink or purple and sparkly. And I don't understand why, like, why? Just, it's – just, no, don't stop doing that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, unless you're getting, like, a custom rogue bar and you want it to be pink, like, that's different.
0: that mean,
2: be but pretty cool. I think what, if you want to market to women, you have to make it smaller sometimes for hand size. Like, my hands get tired of gripping male-sized dumbbells, um, which is fine. I just use straps and it's fine. But. Um, I have
1: small hands, too, so I feel you on that.
2: Yeah, axle bars must be fun for you. So I use straps. Um, So, but, like, they make um, 35-kilogram barbells that are smaller that women use in competition because their hands are smaller and they just can't grip uh, the big, the regular size barbells. So I think instead of making things pink, make them appropriately usable for women. Um, They can still be heavy. They just don't need to be pink. Or necessarily do they have to only be one pound. So...
1: Yeah, that's just like because even if you go walk into your everyday PT clinic, right? The Mm -hmm. weights, there's usually like weights that are one through 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, the one, two, and three pound dumbbells are usually like pink, magenta, lavender, purple.
2: Or like that really pretty blue color. Yeah. Yeah. That women are attracted to. It's fine, it's my favorite color.
1: what is yeah. it called? Like light dumbbell blue?
2: Seat oh, foam.
1: <laughs>
0: Sorry.
2: Yeah, it's actually uh, semi-masculine dumbbell blue. <laughs> oh, so, oh, we apparently I'm... have to gender everything we have.
1: So, God, that's uh, that's another conversation that we could probably <laughs> like talk for like an hour about, but I did want to make sure that we hit on two questions with you. Okay. And we've kind of touched on these a little bit, but I wanted to like, maybe go into them a little bit more. Mm -hmm. One was, uh, just differences between men and women, I guess from a training perspective. Um, and then the other one was like, let's talk more about periods.
2: Okay. So let's start with the differences between men and women. So for, and yeah, you're right. We've touched on it. So women should be training heavy. They should be Especially if you're if you're training for powerlifting or resistance training, you need to be training heavy. If you're training to supplement your sport, you need to be training in a way that is helpful to your sport. Um, but when I train a female athlete, I train both females and males. I don't start them in different places. I'm not like, oh, this is a woman, so I have to start her differently than I would start my male clients. I just um, I let it all come out in the wash and then I start making adjustments. So everyone, not everyone gets the same program, but I start everyone at, like, this middle ground. And I'm like, okay, we're going to start here. I'm going to see how you respond to this training, and then we'll go from there. Because there's this idea that women don't respond to training as well as men or that women aren't as strong as men. And women are just as strong as men when you account for lean body mass. So, like, women aren't naturally going to carry more fat on their bodies, and they just don't have the room because they're not tall, generally, to pack on the same level of muscle mass. So you can't, like, um, you can't make that comparison. So you have to say, like, women are going to train just the same as men until we find a way that we need to train them differently. So, um, for example, uh, women have this tendency to be able to train more often than men, Um, But not all women can, and not all women, are. we call it less fatigable, so not all women can return to training as quickly. So we just train women the same, and if we see a deficit, we'll change their training, and if we see that they're not getting the same amount of, or we see that they're not making the gains that we want them to be making, or that we expect them to be making, we'll change the program. So men and women, in my mind, are not different. They need the same things, just the variability between humans is greater than um, the variability between men and women. So there's just a lot of overlap. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, and then periods was the other one, right? Yeah. Um, so this is a big problem in strength training, and I don't know if it's the same in dancing. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm stronger. So there's two main phases of your period, the luteal phase and the follicular phase. And so the luteal phase is when you're like f- from the point of ovulation, so from the point when you release an egg to the first day of your period. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm stronger. I'm sorry, I'm not as strong during this time. And then the uh, follicular phase is from the first day of menstruation, so the first day you start your period to about 14 days later. And people are like, oh, I'm stronger during this time, during the follicular phase. So they will change training to match that. And I think that, again, for the same reasons, women are very variable. And um, there's a lot of changes that happen outside of just your period. Like women are not just this being that it only exists to have a period like we exist with a lot of other stressors in our life that affect training. And, um, so training just based on someone's period is probably going to alter or like not help them as much as if you just like, again, wait to see what falls out in the wash and then train based on the variables that you see. Cause some women don't experience this like, uh, decrease in strength or decrease in capability during the luteal phase. And if you tell them that they are going to experience this difference, you're just setting them up for this self-fulfilling prophecy. They're like, oh, well, it's that time of the month again, so I guess I'll drop my weight and just train suboptimally and wait for this luteal phase to come back. So you're only getting, I'm sorry, wait for the follicular phase to come back. And then you're just like training half the time. So um, those are two big things that happen in strength training that I wanted to, like, this isn't, like, debunk, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if there are similar problems in dance, but.
0: I, I did not know any of that, so thank you for educating us. Um, yeah. I had no idea. And I think not enough dancers are even... Putting any type of weight into their training to realize those impacts, or if they are, they're definitely in the minority. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is it common for you know athletes who are competing in powerlifting or weightlifting to lose their periods like it is in dance, like especially those who are going for the lower weight classes? Because, like we talked about earlier, it is very common in dance, and I mean through the four years that I was in college, I never had my period once. And that's pretty common. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: I don't think it's as common. There are some pretty extreme weight cutting practices that happen. So for for powerlifting, for those who don't know, it's a weight class sport. So you have to come in under a certain weight class or like under a certain weight in order to compete in that weight class. So for example, I compete in the 72 kilogram class, which is 158 and a half pounds. Um, So I have to cut a little bit of weight in order to get down to that class. Um, But I think in powerlifting, it's probably less likely that women are chronically cutting weight in so far that they can't get the strength gains that they need out of their Body, right. um, without that, I think that a lot of women come into powerlifting and they're like, I need to be in this weight class, and they are fixated on a weight class, and so maybe instead of losing their period, they just don't see the strength improvement that some women see. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty typical for women to go up a weight class when they start powerlifting because mm-hmm. you have to you have to put the muscle somewhere, yeah. so. Yeah. Um, I think the weight stigma is still there, um, but maybe not as strongly as it is in dance.
0: Right. And I yeah. think you make a good point that dancers are probably, you know, undernourishing their bodies for longer periods of time than those who just mm-hmm. have to cut a couple weeks before their meat. But I, I mean, yeah. I know I always cut a couple pounds before a show, but mm-hmm. it's not. I was significantly heavier than that in the months leading up to it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think the point at which a dancer loses her period
2: or it's irregular is the point to see an md and see a doctor and say like hey this is happening and hopefully the hope is that they refer you to a dietitian who is Mm -hmm. trained um, a registered dietitian not a nutritionist like anyone can be a nutritionist find a registered dietitian who is trained to help you monitor your calories and your food intake, and they can help you be really successful um, and fuel your body, and you're not going to get – and, like, stay lean. Like, I understand why that is important. Right. So it drives me nuts that you guys are graded on weight. That (laughs) –
0: Okay, not in my university. It's, it's if not, my professor ever into this, they would be so mad. <laughs> <But> <laughs> no, I can no, no. anyone I, think it, that's okay drives me crazy. Yeah. I, I
1: was not trying to point fingers at like any institution or anything. I'm just saying that like that that is something that is out there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Like it it can be because the nature of, of the I guess like the old school mentality is especially when it comes to ballet, like it's very aesthetic focused. Mm-hmm. And so i mean we have talked about this already today but that the number on the scale doesn't really reflect what you're capable of on the stage Mm -hmm. or even what your body composition looks like yeah but to a lot of people that's something that they get hung up on yeah and so they'll set these arbitrary limits and you know
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you get those comments from teachers like well maybe if you were like three pounds lighter you'd jump higher
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: You know, and in my mind, it's like, no, maybe if we programmed more intelligently and did some strength training and like actually facilitated like an increase in adaptation in your like force output, we would see a higher jump.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But that's not how that's not the old school mentality of of dance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. yeah. It now, sounds like
2: dance might need a little bit of an update on the science, <laughs> specifically physics well it seems like they understand physics but maybe not physiology <laughs> right yeah. well you can't spell
1: right. physiology without physics actually you can because it's a different <laughs> f sound never mind um jake so, manley
2: like, everybody round of applause yeah. please
1: uh i'm the least professional professional that you'll ever meet <laughs> um so when kind of like danielle offshoot of what you were saying you're talking about energy balance how dancers would typically probably be in more of a deficit when it comes to energy balance um and i I think that the thought you know maybe like 10 years ago or 15 years ago was that um amenorrhea especially athletic amenorrhea was tied to a specific body fat percentage and because i've I've seen before it presented like if you're below if a female athlete gets below like 15 to 17 percent body fat like that's when you would expect to see something change as far as like menstruation goes mm-hmm. but like now the literature is much more reflective on just overall energy balance and like chronic deficits in energy balance i.e caloric intake being yeah. the culprit for because your body composition can change obviously depending on the demands of the activity that you're doing and there's tons of olympic there well not tons but there are olympic sprinters who have very low body fat percentages but don't have a loss of menstruation so it just comes down to how adequately you're feeling your body and well, it overall energy balance. Cause a lot of times like the population we're talking about is exercising for insane amounts of time right. throughout the, but I just think that like that undernourishment is something that we see pretty commonly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know we're planning on getting a dietitian on here at some point, but I think a lot of dancers are fearful of seeing a dietitian because they think that the dietitian is going to tell them to put on weight to get into the healthy, you know, norms of BMI, which I think is a fair, you know, fear of theirs. But I think not all dietitians are just going to say, you know, you need to go gain 15 pounds. But a lot of us, you know, are definitely under where we should be, but that is a requirement of your job is to be that way. So I think that's something that still needs a lot of work.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Do you think that the uh,
2: culture of dance would ever change to like facilitate women being healthy and dancing at the same time? Or would that, do you ever see that happening? Do you see a shift at all? Jake, you want to take this one? Um,
1: I I think I think there is change coming. I think in, when you look at the like larger studios and, and groups, again like Cirque du Soleil, they're not explicitly like a dance company, but they do have dancers and other performing artists um, that are a part of their organization. And they focus very heavily on on providing services like strength and conditioning and nutrition to help promote and improve performance on the stage. I just don't – I think there's so many variables that go into it from a – like a local level that like if you really wanted to change the – understandings and like I guess the kind of the, the paradigm of dance culture itself like you would really need to start like at the there's like grassroots local levels. Mm-hmm. And that's where like I think it's it's trending that way. like I think as um, more and more younger people come in and start opening studios and teaching classes that have been exposed to this stuff that um, there will be some changes in that. But I think this old school mentality is something that's just really hard to, to combat Mm -hmm, because it's, they're very much rooted in like the, you know, like appeal to authority or or traditional, you know, like arguments Um, and like, it's just kind of accepted like this is what you do if you want to dance.
0: Yeah. 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 I would also agree that it's, it seems that it is trending the correct direction. Um, One of the principal dancers at New York City Ballet, who, which is a phenomenal company, you know. Yeah, everyone knows of it. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows that Misty has come out and said that she was criticized for being a curvy dancer. And I'll put curvy in a lot of quotes because she is (laughs) definitely not curvy. And if you saw her on the side of the street, you would not think she's curvy. But she has some, like, glute definition and... Some arm definition, which makes her, you know, outstanding in the dance world, and she has made it, you know, to the top of the top. And I think a lot of young dancers look at that and see that they can look different, you know, and have some muscle mass on them and still make it. Um, Yeah. And I'll go back and say I think when you get casted, so when you get chosen to be in a certain piece, especially at the collegiate and pro level. You get chosen because you look like someone typically who has done the part before you. Mm-hmm. So if they take, they're taking this piece from a hundred years ago. I guarantee you those girls are pretty emaciated looking. So when the casting director comes in, they're gonna choose the person who looks like that person. So we're kind of just perpetuating mm-hmm. the issue. Um,
2: yeah, so. I think your comment about like young people coming in and starting their own studios. And like changing the culture that way is really important in giving dancers their own voice and saying, like, no, this is what we want dance to look like. Mm-hmm. And this is how we want our culture to be. So. But, yeah.
1: yeah. It's, it's, I think change is coming. It's just, it's going to take a while.
2: Uh huh.
1: Um, there's just a lot. And I mean, we've talked about a lot of these stigmas, but there's just a lot of stuff that. Like, as a community, we have to work through and challenge and understand that, you know, you're not going to get bulky just because you touched a weight. You Mm-mm. know? It's no. It's literally impossible for you to look like a man unless you're on, like, insane amounts of steroids. hmm Which is yeah. not going to happen. Like, that's yeah. not – dance as a whole, like, that's not a culture where you're going to see steroid use. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, like,
0: <laughs> it's never going to happen. Um,
1: um but do we you just see need it to... in
0: male dancers steroid I, use? I haven't worked with enough male dancers to know, honestly, but I think it could happen.
2: Yeah. Um, if it's a very masculine
0: mm-hmm.
2: kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Interesting. I, I personally don't know I've I've only worked with a handful of, of male dancers. Um uh-huh. I haven't heard it discussed, yeah. but I'm not gonna say it's not impossible. I think uh, I don't know. Have you guys, Daniel? Have you ever seen the the YouTube video of like the West Virginia University wide receiver that was a uh, a dance major? No. I have to. I'll like put that in the show notes, but I'll send it to you guys. Um, but I, I think there have been some more like uh, mainstream, like accessible, like masculine dancers um but i don't i mean he was an ncaa football player so he definitely wasn't taking steroids um Hmm. but yeah i don't i don't know i wouldn't be surprised like it would just depend on the um on the person and like what you know some maybe some of the aesthetic demands of their their studio is looking for yeah Uh, i'm not gonna say it's an impossibility but i definitely think that if there was going to be like anabolic steroid use in the dance world, it would probably more likely be men versus women. I really don't think you're going to see that at all.
2: No. It's pretty unlikely with women as well, I think just across the board. Um, But, yeah. Maybe that's my (laughs) naivety speaking, but... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do real. I did realize I made a mistake. Dysmenorrhea is not um, abnormal. We're going like way back to the beginning. Sorry, dysmenorrhea is not abnormal periods, but amenorrhea is right. So overall, just okay. amenorrhea. So, okay. Yeah, I wanted to correct myself. I recognized I made a mistake. So.
1: All right, so Claire, like, yes. just maybe one or two quick questions, okay? Because um, we are we're coming up on like almost two hours of.
2: I know we, talking we to got you really awesome. into it.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love?
2: Okay, um, I, <laughs> this is so weird. Um, I really, really, really love airplanes. Um, if I wasn't trying to go to medical school right now. I would probably be trying to become an airline pilot. <laughs> um, so I understand, like, the physics of how airplanes fly. I understand what lift is. But when you actually watch, like, one of these really massive airplanes take off and you can, like, see the wings start to move, it just blows my mind every time. I have, like, stopped in the middle of streets because of airplanes. <laughs> I stop listening to people talking when there's an airplane. And if you have ever been to San Diego, the airplanes fly right over one of the highways to land. Um, And like traffic, not just my, not just me, but traffic like slows heavily when airplanes fly over because it's just, it's so cool. So they fly right by downtown. um, And my favorite coffee shop sits right under the flight path. And I just like look up at them and I'm in awe. So airplanes, weirdly enough.
1: (laughs) All right. And then um, I guess just like if you had to give. So like obviously like our podcast is more targeted towards dance population, for arts mm-hmm. population. Um, what if you had to give like one piece of advice or one piece of like a, like an actionable thing
2: mm-hmm. that
1: one of our that our listeners could use tomorrow? What would it be?
2: Actionable piece of advice. Oh man, I don't know. Um. For tomorrow, just, like, for tomorrow specifically, don't get wrapped up in this, like, fear-mongering that's going on in the world right now with uh, this podcast is being taken during coronavirus or recorded during coronavirus. So um, don't get caught up in that fear-mongering and don't – yeah, I think that's, like, pretty much my – suggestion a lot of the time is don't let fear mongering run your life. So don't let like this fear of something not working out, tell you to not do something. Um, so there's not just like one path to success. There's not just like one way to do something. Um, if you want to do it, like just go do it and don't let other people tell you that it's the wrong way to do it. So I like that. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah. Fear mongering. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome.
0: All right.
1: All right. Claire, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show with us. Thank we, you so much was, for having me. It was me. awesome. If anyone listening wants to get in contact with you, what is the best
2: way that they can do that? So, I'm most active on Instagram. It's, uh, you will have to put this in the show notes probably, but it's Claire yeah. underscore bullseye strength. Um, or bullseyestrength.com. Uh, my email is on there. So,
1: now are you spelling the word underscore out?
2: No, no, it's the symbol. But thanks, Jake. I okay, appreciate I just... it. <laughs> I'm glad that you asked for clarity. I I am a
1: simple man, as you know.
2: Just Chobani um, everywhere. Chobani. Yes,
1: we're not legally allowed to say that this podcast is sponsored by Chobani. Just an FYI.
2: Oh, I wasn't going to say that it was, but (laughs) okay. I
1: just have to make that clarification for any of my, my uh, followers who specifically follow me for Chobani based content. Oh,
2: okay.
1: Yeah. But anyways, thank you for tuning in this week guys where we spoke with uh, Claire's eye of bullseye strength. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or have a topic that you'd like us to discuss, Shoot us an email at d b a l podcast at gmail dot com, and then if you'd like to reach us out directly, you can find us on Instagram. Uh, Danielle, what is your handle?
0: My handle is Danielle Anise underscore DPT. So it looks like Danielle A Nice underscore DPT, but I swear it is my middle name. So that I is think, mine. I think you're a nice doctor of yeah. physical therapy. So she, she's. A nice. I think
2: it's fitting. <laughs> thank you
1: and then you can find me at um the movement docs which is my like low quality pt meme and vlog based page um and that's at tmd underscore the symbol not the word uh, the movement docs so again thank you guys for listening and everyone remember don't break a leg